Hello, this is Ann Doherty, and you're listening to a special episode of Current as we navigate yet another week in the energy industry under COVID-19. We hope that you, your family, and your teams are staying safe at this time. On this week's podcast, we're going to cover impact evaluation considerations in light of COVID-19. And in this discussion, we're going to look at ways that evaluation practitioners in our industry are thinking through program impacts in light of the virus and also provide tips and some thinking on how to mitigate any risks that you may feel or may experience in the future as a result of this unusual time in 2020. Um, So today we're previewing this week's webinar on the podcast under the same topic. And this week's webinar will be moderated by Eileen Hannigan, principal at Illum, who will be facilitating the discussion with members of Illum's technical team. Um, And the folks that will be joining Eileen on that webinar are Jeff Rivas, who is a senior managing director, and Pace Goodman, senior technical consultant at Illum. So thank you all uh, for being here on our podcast. I'm excited to be speaking with the three of you. And uh, for the sake of moving forward, let's jump right in. Um, and uh, starting at a high level, if you all were to sort of step back from your work and think through impact evaluations in general, how are you seeing impact evaluations being affected at this time? What are you seeing and hearing from your clients? Or what are you thinking about? This is Eileen. Um, I think there are different but overlapping sets of evaluation challenges depending on whether you're trying to evaluate programs now that wrapped up in 2019 or early 2020, or whether you're thinking about how you will in the future evaluate programs that are active now. For evaluating past programs, a significant concern right now is contacting customers. Many evaluations rely on contact with customers for verification of equipment installation, spot measurements, free ridership and spillover calculations, and as we talked about on past episodes of this podcast, you know, contacting customers right now is very sensitive. And in businesses, oftentimes the people evaluators need to talk to may not even be there. This is Jess. That's right. Um, I think building off that regarding evaluating ongoing or recently paused programs and pilots, one of the big issues our clients are thinking about is whether and if so, for which program we need to evaluate 2020 performance. It's only mid-April, but I think we can confidently say that 2020 energy use and program participation is likely going to be an anomaly uh, across most, if not all, sectors compared to 2019 and previous years. But in that regard, you know, I think our clients are giving consideration as to which programs and what level of rigor they need to evaluate 2020 performance. For some, I think we might be able to forego this effort entirely or or leverage recently available evaluation results or deemed savings, but there are going to be some investments that we need to still assess impacts for using primary data. For example, performance-based programs or potentially pilots and trials. And I think where that need exists, um, we're, we're helping our clients think through how we can collect data and estimate impacts in a meaningful way while staying in line with state and federal public health and safety um, and triaging just exactly how to do that and with what methods um, we can best attempt to accurately assess impacts. This is Pace. And while I think figuring out how to interpret 2020 findings is is really challenging, uh, one of the things that I'm really concerned about that I honestly haven't been hearing 
um, maybe enough of is creating room in future timelines for any unexpected delays that might be happening now. Um, what if it's March 2021 and you find out that your big evaluation research from 2020 has very unexpected results or you're short of your target savings by, let's say, 10%. I don't know if we're building in enough room right now for how we'll adjust when that time comes. And I think when we get to that point, there will be unexpected uh, findings and, and surprises that we'll have to deal with. That's an excellent point, uh, Pace. You know, even just thinking about how we future-proof the timelines of our evaluations themselves is certainly something that we, we need to consider. So evaluations that require extremely high levels of rigor typically mean that you need to be involved in an in-person visit of, of some sort for any number of reasons. Um, in lieu of that, what other tools can folks rely on in thinking about their evaluations at this time? Great question. Um, I think the selection of tools depends on the data we need to collect. And, and so the, the first place to start is, is there and to identify what that <clears throat> what the data required is. Um, oftentimes when we include a site visit in our evaluation plan, it's to take a spot measurement of power or to set up short-term measurements of power of some particular operating parameter. And I think if that need still exists, we need to get creative and think about potentially engaging um, facility staff or another qualified person to take that measurement for us. Uh, as evaluators, as a longtime evaluator myself, we're normally reticent to have um, another person outside of our organization take such a measurement. But I think now is the time for us to maybe be a little bit more open-minded about how we do data collection. Um, where staff remain on site at facilities um, that have, you know, the personal protective equipment and measures and know how to take such a measurement, I, I think we could engage them. But as Eileen pointed out at the beginning of this podcast, we, we still need to think about um, some of the considerations we gave in an earlier podcast about just where that ask is still appropriate. Um, and if and where we think it is appropriate, you know, providing incentives to facility staff to help us with that, I think is um, definitely something we should consider. And and ultimately where it's not um, a potential possibility to have somebody else collect such data for us, we can likely get um, or satisfy our need for end use specific performance data with trend data from building automation systems. And, and that data is normally always something that can be pulled remotely. And this is Eileen, just to add on to what you were saying, Jess, um, if we're in a situation where maybe what we need is like visual verification of installations, you know, that also can benefit from a little creativity, such as using web-based software or video conferencing, or even just, you know, taking photos with a cell phone, um, which is something that residential customers can do or facility staff that when they've remained on site. Um, can help provide that verification, you know, and then if those aren't feasible options either, then, you know, we have to be open-minded about, you know, using some of the other approaches we're talking about today, such as, um, you know, deemed savings or prior evaluations, and just, you know, always recognize that um, some of these methods may be imperfect, but we, you know, we're doing the best we can. That's a great point, and in thinking along those lines, you know, often we only have one shot to get it right with an evaluation and may run into, as you've alluded to, circumstances where we just simply can't 
collect the data, we're aiming to collect for any number of reasons. Uh, but when you think about other ways to sort of manage risk, can you talk about the types of redundancies that we need to build in so that critical data might be collected or to at least try to protect ourselves against um, a loss of data you know, under these circumstances? Certainly, and I think that's one of the most um, important lessons learned just in our small impact evaluation world um, in terms of what the impact COVID-19 has had on our ability to assess impact is, is exactly that, that if we haven't built in redundancy, we're likely going to fail. And I think evaluation plans are a prime example of where we often specify a pretty narrow plan, um, meaning we don't have a lot of redundancy or diversity of methods through which we can capture data. Um, and I think this is a, a really great moment for us to rethink that. And I, and I think if we can diversify those methods, not only will we have the redundancy you're talking about, Anne, but we'll probably also enhance what we can learn from our evaluations. And that effort can take a lot of different shapes. I think it can, you know, even go really, really far upstream in a program's um, implementation planning to thinking about what could we capture at that level? What could we be asking installers to capture, like, for example, submitting pictures at the time of install or very detailed installation dates and times, things that could, um, again, pr prove redundant to us far downstream um, when we need to think about um, the different data necessary to assess impact. I think also there are opportunities for device level data from the proliferation of connected devices and other things we need to consider um, drawing from. But I think the other interesting thing that you said in your question and that I think um, exists in the industry is this idea of when we think about impact evaluations about getting things right or to rephrase that a bit to um, think about what accuracy looks like. And there's been a lot of disagreement um, in the evaluation community over even how we measure accuracy and precision. And I think right now more than ever, we probably first need to align on what um, the successful assessment of impact really entails right now. I agree. I, I think getting it right for programs in 2020 will mean something different for different utilities, different programs, and, and different measures. For a lot of TRM-based energy efficiency measures, uh, where we're thinking about long-term savings, evaluators can still rely on engineering reviews, potentially submitting data. Basically, if your data is capturing uh, physical principles like the operating efficiency of an HVAC system, your results from 2020 might still be accurate. However, energy usage and device data are another story. Energy report programs are evaluated for their impacts in a specific year, and 2020 performance will reflect the reality of the crisis we're experiencing right now. It's still valuable to estimate savings from home energy report programs in 2020, but we just need to realize that the savings we're seeing for 2020 might not mean that much in 2021. So I'm glad you brought up uh, behavioral programs because I want to pivot us to talking a bit more about billing and AMI data analyses because we've talked quite a bit about on-site um, measurement and verification. So as we look uh, to assess and attribute energy savings and or peak savings using AMI and billing data, how might we evaluate the impacts that have occurred, say, in early 2019 relative to what's happening in late 2019 or early 2020, given 
this massive shift in behavior that we're experiencing and seeing as a result of COVID-19. Well, the good news for right now is that we're fine using billing or AMI data to measure changes in energy use through about February 2020, though, you know, it depends on, on where you are and where your lo the local um, stay-at-home orders were implemented. But things get trickier after that. So we often use billing data to look at whether adjusted or normalized change in energy use. But the shelter-in-place or safer-at-home, as we call it in Wisconsin, orders have, you know, really upended many people's lives and how they use energy in their homes and businesses. It's, you know, it's anything but normal right now. Um, and we don't know when it will return to normal. I mean, I, I have kids. I'm asking myself, will kids return to school before the fall? Will their summer activities be canceled? You know, even after the stay-at-home orders are lifted, how many people will be spending more time at home because they're not working or because they're choosing to not go out during their free time? Um, how many businesses will be shuttered? So I think, you know, energy use patterns are going to look very different for many months to come. I agree. I think usage data for 2020 is is going to be really hard to wrangle and and use in a meaningful way uh, for evaluation. Maybe a good rule of thumb is if you're using usage data or device data and finding you know something like the results you were expecting to find, or you're only making minor adjustments in evaluation, then maybe that that's totally fine. But if it leads you to any major outcomes like potentially dropping a measure or reducing the savings so much that it becomes a smaller piece of your portfolio in, in 2021, then I do think you need to consider alternate paths. Um, are there other evaluation methods available that could be more robust to the current crisis? Uh, for example, engineering reviews. Are there results that you can use from 2019? And uh, Maybe most importantly, could you delay the decision until after program year 2021? Um, it might be better to delay the decision than to make a decision with bad data. That's an excellent point, Pace. And uh, it really kind of calls forward all of the ways in which, you know, what's happening now is really going to impact how we move forward, you know, even a year from now. You know, one of the things I loved about the memo that you all authored were all of the creative approaches that you outlined for parsing out savings in situations where, you know, we're dealing with these really atypical periods. And um, one of the things that you proposed was using a comparison group um, when thinking about using billing data or consumption information. And um, one of the approaches that you outlined specifically, which I, I love because it's so clever, is this variation in adoption approach that essentially uses later participants as a comparison group for earlier participants. Eileen, I would love to hear a little more from you about this approach and why this particular comparison group approach might be useful in this moment of all this atypical behavior that we're seeing. Yeah, thanks, Anne. Um, you know, so the goal of both those methods is to provide some comparative data to adjust for the unusual circumstances of 2020. So, you know, the ideal way to do this, right, would be through a randomized control trial, but, you know, that's not possible for many program designs or for programs that, you know, launched months ago. Um, but using some quasi-experimental methods, we can try to approximate having a control group. 
So a matched comparison group means we select a group of non-participating customers who are similar to the participants on energy use and other characteristics. And the variation adoption approach that you mentioned, you know, means that we'll use later participants in a program as a comparison group for earlier participants. You know, and that has the advantage of removing one of the sources of bias, um, kind of the self-selection bias, and that we're comparing to groups of customers who clearly are interested or have chosen to, you know, participate in an energy efficiency effort. Um, you know, in both cases, having that comparison group can then help adjust for the unusual events that we have going on right now. Um, just, you know, as an example, um, you know, billing analysis for a whole house program might show an increase in energy use in 2020 because, as we talked about, so many people are working and playing at home. But by using one of these comparison groups, we might find that non-participants have a bigger increase in energy use, you know, which would then actually suggest that the program had savings. I really like the variation and adoption approach. I like that you can use later participants or earlier participants and, and help control for that self-selection bias. But I still think you have this issue where um, do you really want to know what the 2020 savings are and do you want to use those results for future planning? What do they really mean for evaluation? Think about thermostat setbacks. Um, and I expect we'll find very little savings from thermostat setbacks in 2020 at least when you're using usage data, because people are mostly home. There's not really that much of an opportunity uh, to use a setback and then ultimately achieve savings. However, you might find different results in 2021 when people hopefully are back at work and, and leaving the home for other activities. So even while you can control for some of these behavioral aspects and isolate what the energy efficiency savings are, I still think we have this challenge where your results from 2020 just might not mean that much for 2021. And, you know, they hopefully won't lead you to making uh, poor decisions for certain programs or, or measures. That's a great point, Pace. And I very appreciate those words of caution. You know, if we were to step back and look bigger picture at some of the investments that are being made right now, specifically around new programs and new initiatives like pilots, um, you know, what can we do to manage expectations and make sure that some of these newer investments aren't being judged solely on the impacts of 2020 or, you know, their, their performance during this year? I think really clear and transparent communication is going to be the key between, you know, program administrators, evaluators, evaluation auditors, regulators. And I think more importantly, we have to be okay with reporting and receiving disappointing results and to understand them in the context of our current situation. I mean, I agree with Pace's caution about, do we want to be looking at 2020? Do we want to make decisions? Um, but I think we can't shy away from looking at what happens to energy use in 2020. It's information we can learn from. Um, but policymakers also need to recognize that the value of programs should not necessarily be judged solely by those results. Um, and we may need flexibility in how things like goals and earnings opportunities and rate recovery are approached. I completely agree with Pace and Eileen on this topic. And I think communication on this just can't start soon enough. Um, it is probably too soon to know the full impact of, of COVID-19 on energy use, on program participation, and um, it's probably too early to predict the timeframe across which we'll 
experienced that impact in our programs and our program implementation design, all of it. But I don't think it's too soon to begin to address what we need to do this year and what maybe a more helpful metric might be. Um, and and to your question, Anne, I think, you know, in addition to mitigating expectations, I think seeking to find alignment on an alternative uh, metric for 2020 would be another good use of our time right now. Great point, Jess. So let's think about metrics for other types of programs, like pay per performance programs. Uh, estimating savings for these types of programs is really important because their performance is um, and their their payment ultimately is tied up in what we measure and how we measure. Um, how might we deal with that in this moment? Why is that important? These programs really pose a challenge for everyone involved right now. Um, to start, it's hard to install the measures. They're typically direct install or some energy efficiency staff is going into buildings or residences to install measures for a pay for performance program. And that's just not easy to do right now. So on the implementation side, it's hard. Uh, it's also hard when you're trying to measure savings. Imagine a small business in a pay for performance program. Maybe they used to use something like 40 kilowatt hours per day. Now with the shelter in place order, maybe they're using two kilowatt hours per day. The implementer installed some sort of measures there. And now potentially should they be compensated for that 38 kilowatt hours per day of savings? Obviously not, but it's hard to differentiate what the energy efficiency savings are as compared to the effect of the shelter in place order. Um, like Eileen said earlier, there are comparison groups and control groups to control for that, but those lead to their own challenges. And I think maybe the, the biggest point to the story here is that the payments that the implementer was expecting for these measures and the payments that the program was planning to provide the implementer is just going to be very variable. The results are going to be variable depending on what methods you're using. and we're just not going to be able to see that performance play out how we were hoping to, at least not in 2020. That's a great point. Um, and it brings forward all of these other questions that unfortunately we don't have the time to dig into right now, but definitely have impacts on our industry. Um, you know, thinking beyond assessing impacts, what do you think other perhaps larger learnings might be from evaluating energy use and program performance at this time? Well, I think this is such an opportunity to learn about people's energy using behavior when they are at home. Um, we have more devices collecting data about that behavior than we ever have before. You know, just from smart thermostats, we can learn a lot about what comfort means to home occupants. You know, when are they overriding the thermostat? When are they changing the set point? Um, you know, looking at AMI data, we can understand patterns of energy use across end uses and throughout the day. I mean, these feel like unusual times, but we're still, I keep hearing, 12 to 18 months from having a vaccine. So that even if stay-at-home orders are lifted, you know, later this spring or later in the year, I think people will still be spending more time at home um, until we have a vaccine, until everybody is back at work. So, you know, with, um, you know, the economic impacts of this pandemic, like, let's use the data we can collect to understand the energy use to give better, more targeted guidance to people for how to lower energy bills. 
Yeah, I, I love that. And I think to that, I'd add that we can use that same idea to look for signs that maybe things are returning to normal. I think we can use AMI and energy consumption data to ultimately track what recovery looks like within a sector, within a region, what pace it takes, and, and ultimately to help us identify what maybe the next new normal looks like and whether with it, it carries a different set of load shapes. Um, and perhaps more importantly than that, we can use that lens to identify the distribution of, of both impact and recovery across our most vulnerable communities and, and use that to help us um, continue to think through what we need to do to support those communities. Mm -hmm. Both have given um, such excellent fodder for, for thinking about how we might take advantage of this time to be more thoughtful about how we you know, spend money in our industry in the future and also you know, what we look for in terms of uh, who, is, who ha requires you know, additional services and merits our attention. So really appreciate uh, that perspective as well in closing. Um, so with that in mind, I want to thank you all for all of the thoughtful work you put into this memo. I know that many folks in our industry, our clients and, and others are going to be well served by it. Um, it's a question that many people are asking themselves. So I'm glad that we were able to contribute to hopefully answering uh, how to deal with impact evaluations in this moment. So again, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Ann. Yeah, thanks, Ann. Thanks, Ann. Thank you. So this is Ann Doherty, and you're listening to Current. Current was created by a Looms production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. See you next time. Hang in there.